because of that fact, Paul is right to say that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Because he is our eternal good judge. His judgment in our lives, his judgment in the realm that we cannot see, is our hope and our salvation. Because his judgment is good, his judgment is right, his judgment brings deliverance. And our New Testament passage is a very lovely, oft-quoted passage from the book of Hebrews. Um, might be in your Bible is like, heroes of the faith. Um, so Paul goes through this list of all of these people who have loved God and served God and have been able to do amazing things because of their faith in him and have been able to suffer amazing things because of their faith in him. And there's no distinction between those two things in the scripture. It's not like the, the victories because of faith are good and the suffering because of faith is bad. It's all good. It's all amazing things that these people have accomplished because of their faith. <clears throat> And we're told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And some people think that means there are lots of stories that we read about. And some people think that that means we're being watched all the time. I don't care which of those things we believe. It doesn't matter to me. What is true is that we are a part of a body of Christ. We are a part of a community of faith that began long before any of us were born that will extend after our death, that though we are separated from one another by time, by distance, by languages, by cultures, by death itself, we are not separate. We are one body, and we are not alone. When I would invite us to worship, I would invite us to join in with the angels and the saints and all of creation. Because there is a great host of God's good creation that is loving and worshiping him all of the time. And we are a part of that. That's why we read from the common lectionary. That's why we celebrate the Christian year. To be a part of the people that we are a part of. We don't act like we're a part of one another, but we are. And it is good for us to remind ourselves and because there is more to the world than we can see, and we are not alone, we are a part of this company. And one day, we will all separation will be gone between the spiritual and the physical, between the saints that went before and those of us who are alive today. There will be no more division. There will be no more striving. There will be no more loneliness. And God has called us to hold on to that hope and to live out that promise today that we are a part of one another, that we are surrounded by the love of God in ways and in things that we cannot see in people around us that we know and those who have gone before that we have yet to meet but look forward to chatting with one day. And that God is the Lord of us all. Josh, would you please read for the Psalms for us? I'll be reading the Psalm 82. 
God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the land of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any friend. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. I'm reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 29, and also chapter 12, verse 2. I think the people passed through the Red Sea and took the dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. I think the walls of Jericho fell at the dead end of the circle, seven days. I think Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish from those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. It was more, should I say. The time will fail me to tell Gideon, Barak, and Samson. Number seven, David and Samuel, and the prophets, who faith conquered kings, ministered justice, obtained promise, shut them out of the lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the end of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war. The foreign enemies should fly, who received their dead by resurrection.
let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Through him, you are forgiven. You are welcome. You are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. All the nations belong to him. God, God of all, all the nations, nations you, you rescued, rescued your people out of the Red Sea and delivered Rahab from battle. You rescued the lowly and needy from injustice and tribulation. Surround us with so great a cloud of witnesses that we may have faith to live by your word in our time. Courage to persevere in the race set before us and endurance in the time of trial. Amen.
stretches to the sky.
this morning as we come to a time of Titus offerings. I pray that you would keep us mindful of all that we have received from you. I pray that we would be motivated by the fact that the breath in our lungs, the, the very life in our, in our veins, that it all comes from you. And this time as we give back to you, we give you our time, we give you our talents, we give you our, our work and our offerings, and you know, it all comes from you. For God, you also, what a blessing it is to be, to be the hands and feet of you on this earth, to, to love those around us, that we get to be part of that. I pray that you would work in and through us in that. and 
to the book of Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible, and if you raise your hand, someone will probably bring you one. Those back there today. There we go. Um, Proverbs is kind of toward the center of the Bible. If you hit Psalms, take a right. And we're going to be staying primarily in chapter 17 today. Although in this section of the Proverbs, I've been preaching more on themes than on passages. We've been in a series through the book of Proverbs for a while now. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And one thing I can't stress enough, wisdom is different from information. Uh, information is what is trending. We are always creating new information and trying to stay in the know. But wisdom is that which has been true from the beginning. Information is of the mind only. Wisdom is of the heart. It blends together the mind and the deepest recesses of our emotions. Perhaps more than anything, what we need in our lives is not the information of today. What we need is the wisdom of times and places other than our own to help us sort through the common ideas and behaviors which have showed, so shaped our culture and our lives today. Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, insists that wisdom, too, it's not hiding. It's not hard to get to. Uh, but God is proclaiming and revealing it in every corner of creation. It's just that the noise of this life it's hard to know what to believe. The noise of this life drowns out the wisdom calling to us in the streets. Who can you trust to speak or even know the truth? How can we live in a way that won't leave us empty, that won't leave us alone, that won't leave us on the wrong side of history or regretting what we've done? In the last few weeks, we've talked about relationships within families, and we're going to come back to that. We also looked at the advice of Proverbs and making big decisions, uh, how we've convinced ourselves that our plans are often more important than they actually are, how we spend a lot of our lives asking for guidance on things which have already been revealed in Scripture. Uh, perhaps more importantly, we're, we talked about the way in which God is able to take all of our decisions, even our mistakes, and in His sovereignty weave His plans together with our own, making beauty out of our brokenness. Uh, this week we're going to dig deep on something that I just touched on briefly last week, which it's another one of these old ideas, one that we have largely lost from our lives in churches. We ought to recover. The idea of vocation. And I don't just mean work, I mean, I mean Christian vocation, I'll explain myself. I, I should argue, or I would argue that vocation is one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs. 
And as such, we should see vocation as central to a life lived in wisdom. But vocation in the old sense, not in our sense today. Pray with me briefly and we'll, we'll look at it. Father God, as I always do, I, I just pray that whatever comes out of my mouth, Lord, whatever people hear, Lord, that you would minister truth to our hearts, God. That we would know your truth and that truth will set us free. God, because we desperately long to be free. I pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you grace. Amen. Vocation. I know uh, some of y'all are like, look, I did not come from a week of work to talk about work at church. Um, it's not just work, though. It's not just your job. The wisdom literature does have a lot to say about work, though. For instance, Proverbs 18, 9. Whoever's slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys Meaning, not doing anything of value to and for your community is tantamount to vandalizing your community, which how much strife you cause. Or uh, how about chapter 12, verse 11? Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but those who follow worthless pursuits lack sense. You should find work. You should put effort into it. You should try to do it well. Before you start going around telling people the Bible wants them to go farm a bootstrap for 80 hours a week, um, you should hear the rest of what Proverbs has to say about work. For example, that it's foolish to spend all of your life working, all of your time at your job, and none of it with friends and family, none of it resting, none of it enjoying life. That you should spend time and rest despite the cost of that. I know y'all talked, I, I, y'all have heard me talk about how much effort it takes in my life to carve out a day to rest. But you should you shouldn't work for someone who demands more of you than they should. You shouldn't have to pursue your passions and find fulfillment in, in your work. This is something that our generation has been told over and over again that you should find your passions, that you should pursue them in your work. It's not biblical advice. God is the one who fulfills and sustains us. Work is meant to provide for yourself and the people around you. And vocation in the old sense is a much larger idea than just work. I know I've said that a couple times. Vocation in the old sense means all of the ways that you use your talents and your abilities to serve your family and your community. As Peter writes in one of his letters, as each has received a gift, let him use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I was thinking this week uh, about the incredible... Uh, jams and preserves that Meg makes and that she distributes through the, the church at times. I was thinking about um, our fig tree ripening and, and passing those out. Anything that you do, all your talents and abilities, everything you have to serve your family and community. Marriage, family, for instance, for centuries was seen as one of the cardinal vocations of the Christian, both men and women. I remembered as I was writing this, a certain joke website publishing an article a few years ago that the headline read, Father of Three wonders when he'll get a chance to influence others for Christ. <laughs> yeah, which is their tongue-in-cheek way of saying, if you have a family, that's already a ministry. It's already a vocation. And it should be your primary one. Citizenship was also, for centuries, citizenship was seen as, as part of a Christian's vocation. Learning ways of interacting in civic life toward the thriving community. The separation of church and state should not be 
a separation of the Christian and the state. So hopefully you can see what I mean. Vocation, all the ways that you use your talents and abilities to serve your family and community. What talents do you have? What gifts? What abilities? I don't care what your role is or how humble you think it is. We need you. We need you in our church. We need you in our community. I need you in my life. Without you, we as a church are a body that's missing members, a temple missing stones. Two things are true from Scripture this morning. I want to speak both truths loudly. You ought to pursue vocation in your life. You ought to. That's one. And, and two, you ought not to allow vocation to consume you. Because in the end, your efforts and abilities are not what sustains your community. It's God's providence. And God gives to his servants rest. Toward the beginning of Proverbs, if you were here for the beginning of this series, Solomon compares what he calls foolishness or folly or wickedness. He compares it to the ancient Canaanite god Moat. Do you all remember this? Should have put that picture up, Lewis. I don't have it in the slides today. But. Uh, Baal, that we talk about a lot, he was the, the god of, of thunder and sky and rain, and like Zeus uh, in the more familiar Greek canon. But, but Moat ruled over the underworld. He was the god of death. Do you remember this? Moat, Moat was always, always consuming, yet never satisfied, always devouring yet never full. His throat led to Sheol, it was said, to the underworld, so everything he swallowed collapsed into the abyss. It's a good image. It's a convicting image for me when we talk about work, when we talk about vocation. I confess to you at the start of the series that work in my life can be this way. Work is one of the things which can consume my life if I let it, which is always devouring my time and my energy, and yet somehow always seems to want more. But I've been without work, too. I've been without enough work. And that was an equally desperate situation. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you, you were there now where your work or the lack of it is devouring your life. I've seen it. I've lived it. I know how helpless it can feel. You have to find a balance, right? And I say that smiling because I know how difficult that can be. Work is like water. You have to have enough to live on, but too much and you'll drown. It's difficult to find that balance. Sometimes you can feel afloat and stranded. Like if you change your life in any way, you'll be adrift without much hope of rescue. I've talked with a lot of people, especially through the pandemic, who are struggling with vocation and who have stopped believing that it's possible to find a healthy work-life balance. The news has been filled with stories of young families, especially young moms, leaving the workforce in droves over the past couple years, or changing jobs, going remote, going part-time. And as a father with young kids, I completely understand where this is coming from. Uh, we've inherited and, and created ourselves a, a culture where everyone works full-time, and yet childcare over the past couple years especially has been unavailable or unstable. And everyone with kids right now is realizing just how much family can require of you. I was talking to one friend the other day who told me that she has lost all hope of creating any kind of work-life balance and that she is focusing instead on survival. She's not alone. A lot of people aren't having kids or they're waiting indefinitely or trying desperately for someone 
not to work or for one of the couple to go part-time. And there's a general sense among people my age especially of we're just waiting for the world to change. And the waiting place, as Dr. Seuss tells us, is not a place that we should stay. A multi-platinum album, just for example, from this year, largely about work and family, declares, I don't know anyone who is truly satisfied. Let's ask this question this morning. Is there something else? Is there something between dropping out and falling down exhausted? Is there a third way, a middle way, perhaps, between thirst and drowning? Between poverty, destitution, and exhaustion? In answer, the wisdom literature speaks of vocation and balance as a path toward wisdom and righteousness. I am not going to be able, I, I struggled with this sermon, y'all. I've got so many thoughts, so much to say about this. I know it's so needed for today. I, I'm not going to be able this morning to get to the bottom of even what Proverbs, especially what Scripture has to say about work and vocation, what our lives should be pointed at, what we should be spending our time on, what we should be giving our lives toward. Like I said, it's a major theme of the Proverbs, and it's a major theme of Scripture altogether. This is what I think about in those moments of my life where I have suddenly a moment of quiet. This is what crowds my thoughts. Am I living rightly? Am I focusing my time on things that matter? Am I going to get to the end of my life and look back and wonder why I spent all my time the way I did? I'm not going to be able this morning to get to the bottom of what Scripture has to say about vocation and balance, fall and oppression. I, mean, I want to admit that before I, start, I move into the rest of the sermon and you think, what? He didn't really answer the question. True. But I want to make a start. And maybe we'll come back to it. I've said that about like 12 things, so we'll see if I come back to all of them. <laughs> I really should have plotted this series out before I got there. It's just a confessional moment. Uh, but I am going to come back to this. Uh, because this is increasingly an important topic. Uh, as Stanley Grant's theologian said, that the major decision that we'll have to make as Christians in this current age is whether or not we want to live as creatures or as machines. Increasingly, I'm convinced what lies at the center of this issue, what lies at the center of our mistakes, is something, a piece of our theological heritage that we've lost altogether in evangelicalism today. Rather, and this is a bit uncomfortable, we haven't lost it. We've intentionally disregarded it. The theological word is sacramentalism. But it means this. It means that God is able to inhabit earthy things in a spiritual way. And that he's able to speak to us in and through his creation. Throughout this series in Proverbs, I've used these, these Proverbs as an ancient uh, this, this ancient wisdom to, to just kind of launch off into church tradition, the great tradition of the church, because the, the refrain of Proverbs is, Son, listen to your father's instruction. Listen. It would be wise for us today to hear the words of our fathers, our ancestors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in other times and places. Vocation is something talked about all through church history. This is not a new issue, a new struggle. But perhaps the biggest focus on issues of vocation came from the works and writings of Martin Luther because he existed in a time and place like ours where the church had gotten very off 
in its thoughts and its practices of vocation. There's a reason we call it a Protestant work ethic, but even that has been massively misconstrued and abused. Um, but Martin Luther, the German reformer, at, at the center of his teaching on vocation was his belief in sacramentalism, was his belief that God was in and through the things that we do with our lives. It meant for him that God was able to inhabit daily tasks, that people were able to worship in everything that they did, uh, that they were able to mirror their creator in every moment of service and creation. If you know anything about Luther's thought, you, you probably know his thoughts about good works and how it relates to salvation. Uh, he taught that while faith in God would lead a person toward good works, that those good works could not save or sanctify a person. We are saved by grace through faith alone, he taught. Not of our own doing, but a gift of God. And if you're thinking, well, that's not Luther, that's the Bible, I would answer that Christians need to be reminded from time to time, all of us, of what the Bible actually does say and teach. We have a great capacity as Christians, as people, in believing only part of our faith. Luther taught, God doesn't need your good works. Are you hearing that? God does not need your good works. But your neighbor does. God doesn't benefit from your good works, Luther taught. But your neighbor might. You see, in his day, what we would call career had basically three options. It was those who fought, those who worked, and those who prayed. Those who fought, those who worked, and those who prayed. The fighters were nobility and chivalry, the, the lords and the knights of the day. Those who worked, meaning the middle class largely of craftsmen and merchants, and those who prayed, meaning the clergy, which at the time would have been largely comprised of not just churches, but monasteries as well. Uh, the clergy were seen at the time as the pious ones. They did the good works of the community and received for their good works the spiritual rewards. They were the saved ones, the good people, saved and glorified by their good works, and this is where we start to go wrong. Other professions were distractions, they taught, from the devotion and the piety of the church. Pastors, monks, were revered as the holy ones of society, and the others were too often told that they were sinful or less holy, that they were in need of indulgence or purgation or atonement in order to enter the society of the pious and hold their heads high. Pray more, pray harder, give more, have more faith, be better. In that society, Luther's message was radical. He taught that holy-seeming acts, which aren't in service and out of love for your neighbor, but instead for your sake alone, he said that those aren't actually good works. A pastor who focuses his energies on his own holiness without loving the people in his community isn't a good pastor, he taught. He writes, if you find yourself in a work by which you accomplish something good for God, or the holy, or yourself, but not for your neighbor, then you should know that that work is not a good work. For each one ought to live, speak, act, hear, suffer, and die in love and service, of another, even for one's enemies." End quote. Luther saw every moral work as holy work. 
because people were spending their days denying their own needs in order to serve the needs of the people around them. He said that this is a daily kind of dying to self. Luther taught that the cobbler or the brewer or the farmer who worked every day to provide some sort of good or service to their community was holier than if, for example, a monk who spent his life in prayer but did not involve himself in his community. He said, the life spent in a trade serving the community is holier than a life spent in prayer ignoring the community. And if you don't know me, you will think that I'm trying to criticize <laughs> monasteries and the church and the great church tradition. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. The mother, though, who pours out her days to care for her children and keep her house, for example, had done a holier work than the most ascetic priest who failed in his asceticism to care for his people. To be clear, again, Luther is arguing not against the institutions of the church or of monastic life, but against the kind of piety that maybe makes a person seem holy, but actually does very little for the people around him. He's not trying to overthrow these institutions, he's trying to reform them. Luther's faith was one that fit just as well in a stable as in a basilica, which is good because our Savior inhabited both spaces. And if it's not clear yet, I largely agree with Luther. I appreciate what I learned about humble service as a coffee barista, for example. For all those years I was working in coffee shops, putting myself through seminary, I say that generously, uh, Annalise largely put me through seminary, but I helped slightly <laughs> in coffee shops. But what I learned in those times, I, I deeply appreciate it, about as much as what I learned in my seminary classes at that time. At the coffee shop, I learned what it means to show hospitality, to make someone feel welcome, like they belong in the space that they've just entered, how to make someone feel like you want them there. I learned how my socially awkward self, I learned how to have a basic conversation, mostly, still learning many things. Um, and best of all, I, I learned humble service something I've used throughout the rest of my entirety of my life in ministry. I tell people all the time who aren't part of this church, one of the holiest people I know is a maintenance worker. Another, another of the holiest people I know is a librarian. Yeah, you too, Lewis. Quick, quick do <laughs> Another is a teacher. Another cares for the elderly and works every day to improve their quality of life. These are holy tasks. Service, building, knowledge, care for children and widows. What religious act is pure than that? Consider for a moment that Jesus' life was primarily spent working construction. The holiest man ever to live spent probably 15 years working as a carpenter and three preaching. Luther taught that vocation was our practical way of dying to self every day. As parents, as spouses, as servants, as workers, we're learning every day to place the needs of others ahead of our own. Our need is not frantically to add more good deeds, more things in and around the work we do, but learn to pursue our vocations in holy ways. What does it look like to be a holy postman? What does it look like to be a holy builder, construction worker, a holy truck driver? We still need this word of wisdom today. We are still divided as the church, but we're no longer reformed. 
and our view of vocation. We call ourselves Protestants, but I see many of the same misunderstandings which characterize the church that Luther was trying to form, reform present in our churches and our lives today. Ask yourselves, why did churches... So I'm going to take, take shot at my own profession first, <laughs> right? Just so you know I'm being honest. Why, why do churches insist on compassion ministry projects which, which gain a lot of attention but don't really meet the need of a community? Why would we rather do a, a toy drive than create a job? Or rather do a short-term trip than actually move into a neighborhood? Rather preach a sermon to strangers than serve and care and get to know a co-worker? And still today, pastors are revered as holy people. And religion, good works, are seen as their craft and trade, right? Pastors are expected to be the holiest people in the church, the most devoted, the most Christ-like. I have seen, just a personal note in my, in my own work life, I have seen pastor after pastor after pastor burn out and leave the ministry entirely because they were trying to be the holiest person in the church. Because they were trying to be the most informed about things of Christianity. Luckily at this church, I'm not even close. So. <laughs> um, it's not a temptation, right? Um, but I've seen pastor after pastor after pastor burn out trying to be who people expected them to be, trying to be the holy person in the church. We don't talk about teaching school and devotion to Christ or working retail or waiting tables or practicing law. If a child's interested in the things of God, we tell them, oh, well, you should go into ministry. And we again believe that religion is something we do at church. Oftentimes we come and we sing songs and we listen to the sermon and we go and many of us leave our religion at the church when we do. Along the way, we've stopped believing God is able to inhabit earthly things. Even though the entirety of Scripture is revealing Him to be a God who does exactly that. All through the Bible, whenever our God is asked how He's different from any other God in the world, and whenever God is asked why his followers are different from any other followers in the world, he says, he responds, I am the God who is with you. And what sets our people apart is that he is with us. In the ancient world, in a time when people believed God lived on top of mountains, in high places, over and over again, God shows his presence is on earth among his people. He tells them, tear down the high places. Come worship me in the middle of the city. When his people scattered into every nation on earth in the exile, God promises in a thousand ways. He says, I am going with you. I am still with you, even though you be scattered among the nations. He promises them, as we saw as we went through Isaiah during this time last year, he promises, I will be who I have always been, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God who emptied himself who entered into earthly humanity, who lived as one of us, who worked one of our jobs, who ate at our tabor, tables and worked out in the fields to be with us, God with us. But I'm afraid in subtle ways we've stopped believing that God actually is with us, that he comes to us where we live and work. We've started believing in subtle ways, well, God, God lives at church. We don't think he's in our workaday lives unless we bring him there in some 
special way. We don't expect to encounter him in our lunchtime meal, for example, or in our morning shower or toothbrushing routine. We don't make space for him throughout our day. We've allowed the separation of church and state, as I mentioned before, to become a separation, not just of the Christian state, but to become a separation of faith and work. Practically, what I'm suggesting looks like breaking down the dividing walls between the various parts of our lives. I'm not saying you need to let work lead over into your family time or into church opposite. Treat your family as though they are your primary vocation. And let what we do here in the church overflow into your work life. Whatever it is that you do, make it holy. For myself, I, I've been thinking for months now about what it means to be a holy pastor. Instead of assuming that just because my work is church work, that it's good works, right? Luther would say, absolutely not. I need as a pastor to love and to humbly serve my people to build times of rest and prayer into my day, which is something I am awful at. To allow myself to slow down in recognition that the work of God in New Orleans does not in any way depend upon me. And I am not necessary to it. I need to be more vocal about the needs of my family here and at work, because they are my primary vocation. Someone were writing a news article about me, it might read, Pastor, father of four finally realizes where his true ministry lies. Meals, too, are sacred times of fellowship. I don't want to waste them. It's easy to forget. It is incredibly easy to forget when you're eating with three kids under three um, that meals are a gathering of God's children around a table that he has providentially provided. I want to sit at the table with people I love and commune with them and remember Christ's work in our lives. Remember our lives together. I'm going to practice hospitality at work and at home. As I practice it here, doing whatever I can to make people, even my children, feel welcomed, like they belong. Listening instead of speaking. It's one that I definitely need more work on. Serving instead of asked to be served. Living according to Christian discipline, even when I'm tired and at the end of my day. And what would it look like to build confession and assurance of pardon into my family life? Confessionally, I will tell you that when I ask that question, I think it might be transformative. And I say that to my own shame. I've been trying to apologize to the kids when I lose it. Or when I fail as a parent, it happens daily. Rather than blaming my mistakes on others because I can. Hopefully these things can help you in your life find ways to remember the God who is with us wherever we go. Even if we go home, even if you rise on the wings of the dawn and drive to work, he's there, and his right hand can hold you fast there too. For you, maybe you aren't pursuing vocation right now, and you need to find work. You need to pursue pouring out your talents and abilities into your community. Y'all, we need you. Maybe you need to reach out to family. Maybe your job is devouring you and you need to get a new one or advocate more for your primary vocations in your work and in your church community. Maybe you need to build in more times of rest in prayer and fasting into your life. Maybe you need to allow the needs of your family 
to get in the way of your career. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I do know that where we've made mistakes, if we don't confess them one to another, we should. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I do know that nothing, no job, no money, is worth selling your soul. And I know if God is speaking to you this morning, today is the day, the day that you should hear his voice and change the path that you're walking on. The days that are past suffice to quote scripture for acting foolishly. I'll close with this just, just briefly. In answer to a question I get all the time as a pastor, people ask me if we will, if we will work when the Lord comes again in the new heavens and in the new earth. Will we have jobs? I believe absolutely yes. But oppression will not exist, nor will the fall strip us of the fruit of our labors. People will not cheat each other. People will value things that are valuable. Nor will our own brokenness limit us in the expression of our talents and abilities. Can you imagine that for those of us who are artists? Imagine a community in which people serve one another with their God-given talents in perfect expression and in fair exchange. Martin Luther King Jr. called it the blessed community. Every kind of good work valued and lifted up. Every person valued and lifted up. Every mountain made low, every valley made high. May the Lord in his wisdom come soon. Pray with me. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would teach us your wisdom without finding fault. God, I pray that you would teach us where to point our lives. God, we are so brief. So much of our time is wrapped up in work and school. God, sometimes in things that we don't even want to be doing. Lord, I pray that you would teach us your ways, that we would be holy. God, that we would pursue vocation, not to try to find satisfaction, Lord, but that we would pursue it in a holy way, meaning that we would find our satisfaction in you and do these things unto you. Lord, these are hard things. They're hard things to think about. They're hard things to work out practically in life. As I said, I struggle in this sermon, God, but I pray that you would teach us your ways. You would teach us how to do things you call us to do. Lord, that you would give us power and knowledge where we have none. Lord, that you would teach us to believe where we have unbelief. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen.
celebrate communion this morning. So we welcome the kiddos back down. The time of remembrance uh, talks a lot about Martin Luther, a preached word, an enacted word of the gospel which saves us. This, this is how we're going to celebrate this morning. I would ask John if you would help me because I
For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Y'all come as you're ready. same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup this new covenant my blood do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes take and drink Lord, and we remember your atoning death. Lord, the sacrifice that you made by which we are able to come to you. God, we were not able to come into heaven, so heaven came to us. Lord, we praise you for your work and your ministry. We pray all this in Jesus' name. So we know you hear us. Amen. Before we go, please join me in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son. serve the Lord.